Welcome to Positivity Strategist, a podcast that injects a good deal of optimism and possibility into your life at home and at work. Conversations with thought leaders and everyday people shine the light on what works and amplifies those everyday micro moments of positivity, irrespective of what else is going on. You'll be energized by lots of practical tips, inspiring you to live a truly satisfying and meaningful life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Positivity Strategist. This is episode 45, and that's positivitystrategist.com slash PS45, and I'm your host, Robin stratton Burkessel. So today, I am deeply honored to welcome Ken Gergen to my show. And Ken is president of the Taos Institute, and he's professor in the Department of Psychology at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. So when I plucked up the courage to email Ken to invite him to be a guest on the show, I was crazy with excitement when he so humbly and graciously replied, it would be his great joy to join me. So, Ken, I want to thank you so much for being with me today and spending some time with me, and I feel truly honoured and filled with anticipation about what we may co-construct in this conversation and what meaning we might create together. So, Ken, please say hello. Yes, Robin, thank you so much. You're very kind. I really appreciate being here with you. Oh, thank you. It's all my pleasure. (laughs) So, Ken, many of the listeners um, who are practitioners of appreciative inquiry will know you and your awesome body of work, and um, particularly in the field of social construction. And so I'd like us to explore that topic today. However, first, I'd like to say a few words to introduce Ken, um, because I want to acknowledge him and just hint at his vast contribution to the body of work in the areas of sociology, psychology, and in particular, social construction. Now, Ken confesses to be a scholar, um, and he spent most of his life in the world of academia, and he's taught and researched all over the world as a visiting and or honorary professor. And this is what I find so exciting. He's, 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 been, he's taught in cities that, um, for example, Tilburg in the Netherlands or Buenos Aires in Argentina and Nanjing in China and Kyoto in Japan, Santiago in Chile and Barcelona in Spain and in Italy in the cities of Trento and Rome and also in Germany, Heidelberg and Berlin and then in Switzerland, St. Gallen and Copenhagen in Denmark, and many of the universities in the US. Ken has published over 300 articles in journals, magazines, and books, and he's married to the equally talented human being, Mary Gergen. <laughs> so my first awareness of Ken was in 2014 when I was at the Weatherhood School of Management doing my Appreciative Increase certification. And one of the foundational principles of Appreciative Increase is the constructionist principle. So I began to feast on social construction and it felt true to my own orientation to the world because of my background in systems thinking and theory. So Ken, let's start with social construction, um, if you wouldn't mind. Would you talk to us about it um, and, you know, what it is and how does it show up in the world? Uh, Sure, Robin. I I want to go back to your um, experience at Weatherhead for just one moment, because one of the happiest things for me in terms of my academic work, in terms of working with social construction and other ideas, is the way in which 
practitioners like yourself have found ways to use them in terms of their work. And what I'm saying here is that it has not been uh, very happy for me to think of, of, let's say, 30 or 40 years writing in academic journals and books. Uh, It's not happy for me to think that all those ideas, all that work would simply stay in those books, in libraries. And and that's what would happen. They would just continue to create, you know, more words uh, in a small circle, hermetic circle like uh, like scholars can be. So it is wonderful to me to see these ideas linking uh, with the world outside of academia. And indeed, that's the uh, importance of the Taos <coughs> Institute to bring academics and practice together. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now with that, uh, social construction. Um, let, let me try to make this, put this in historical light. This may help. We have spent, let's say, uh, the last 300, 400 years in Western culture trying to understand the world around us and who we are, how things function. Generally, we have approached this as, as in terms of two ways. That is, we, we want to observe carefully what's happening, and we want to think about it. So observation and rationality. Mm-hmm. And you recognize these quickly as sort of the, the cornerstones of science. Now, if you take that view, the way it has worked has been towards a convergence. That is, if we study hard with more and more research, we will essentially eliminate all the bad ideas and we'll get closer and closer and closer to the truth. All right? Now, and that's what we understand, that knowledge accumulates, we say. We know more and more about the subject matter. Now, there's a certain utility in that, but you have to look at it in one other way. And that is the more you converge, and this is what is really happening, this is the real, the true, the right, <coughs> voices mm-hmm. get lost. Yeah. People are silenced. Those who are not saying the truth according to what uh, certain people are, are proclaiming are just eliminated from the conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you can begin to see this convergence. Um, and on one hand, you could say, well, now we truly know and now we can be competent. Or you can see it as a vast suppression of the voices of history and culture. Okay, let's apply this now to me sitting here. Mm-hmm. Who am I? What am I? Now, if you approach me from, let's say, a biological standpoint, you can talk to, about, uh, let's say, my brain and my heart and so on. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you, can, you can have a long discussion about who I am and, let's say, whether I'm healthy or not. If you approach me from the position of, uh, let's say, psychiatry, it's not necessarily my my brain and corpuscles which are at stake. You can talk about, let's say, my repression, my the way in which I've been a victim of childhood trauma, or the way in which I'm bipolar, or I have attention deficit. All right. Mm-hmm. If you approach me uh, from the standpoint of a sociologist, none of those things count. I am uh, a white male of a certain age, of a certain economic category, of a certain religious category, okay? If you approach me as my students would, 
none of that makes so much difference. And but it would be well, is he a rough grader, or is he kind to me? Um, does he is he understanding? Is he clear in his lectures? All that would be something the way you would talk about me. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're my kids, you're going to talk about me as daddy. And you're going to have all sorts of other descriptions about whether I'm a good father or a bad father. Or I'm too hard on kids or I'm understanding on kids. Whole different vocabulary. Approach me as a, a Catholic priest and uh, I'm a sinner. Uh, approach me as a... Um, as a, let's say, Muslim, I'm probably an infidel. Now, what I'm trying to point to here is that who am I outside of any of these categorizations? That is, you've got multiple ways of understanding me, of of realities Mm -hmm. for each of these groups. But outside of those groups, who am I? Right. Which is also to say, every one of those groups will supply a vocabulary. They will have their own particular ways of looking at me. And those particular vocabularies and ways of looking are related to what they care about. The biologist or medical doctor may want to help me with my physical health. The psychiatrist with my mental health. Uh, The priest with my state of my soul, my students with uh, who have, whether I'm a good teacher, that is, they all have different invested interests and they have vocabularies related to those interests. Yeah. And they really see, they see you through who they are. So you see the world as you are. Through the groups they participate in. Yeah, that's right. So Ken, when we talk about, you know, uh, we create worlds of meaning within relationships, right? Yeah. Um, are those relationships, relationships of people or relationship with nature, relationship with machines, with ideas? Can you define what yeah. relationships, yeah. what do you mean right, by that? Well, let, me, let me link this back. Now, what I'm trying to say is, each of these groups develops its own way of understanding who I am. That is the reality of me. So what constructionism wants to do is to say, let's not eliminate voices. Let's maximize the range of, of understandings because every tradition will bring something, will have its own way of understanding and will illuminate something from its perspective. Yeah. So constructionism is really the reverse of the, of the whole Western tradition of converging. Mm. It's to say, let us diverge. Let us understand each other. Let us appreciate each other because every perspective has something to it. And we need, to, we need richness, not, not elimination. Okay, now, generally constructionists, if you ask about what the nature of those relations are, they will tend to focus on language that is a shared language. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've done here is to say, well, the priest has a language of soul or s- saving the biologist of corpuscles or hearts, the psychiatrist of oppress- repression and so on. <clears throat> and so a lot of constructionist work hangs on discourse or let us talk together let us so it tends to convert it tends to be concerned with dialogue 
Right. How in dialogue we create what is real, what is valuable, what is rational, um, what is good. <clears throat> However, um, if you, it, once you get into that sort of, it is out of relations that we construct, you begin to realize that, that language is limited, uh, that you've got to take into, a, into account a broader, um, a, a, a broader array of, of con contributions. That is, I can't have the language um, without a context, mm -hmm. uh, without a context of talk. I mean, we could talk about the environment. I need a certain temperature. I need air. I need food and so on. And all that ends, adds to <coughs> uh, the process of construction. And so a lot of interesting work has gone on in recent years um, as constructionism has become... Um, more and more sort of a, a, a way of thinking, how to expand that process out into the broader network of, of, of sort of the world in which we're engaged. So multidisciplinary, going across disciplines. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Let me tell you a funny story that I think right. might illustrate this. Uh, because so, I haven't told one yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you, don't, you don't go away yet. So here's my funny story first. Um, I was in the physiotherapist today because um, I did fracture my kneecap, so I'm having physio treatment. And so as the physiotherapist pulls up my track pants, he goes, ooh, quitters. What? Quitters. <laughs> And I'm thinking, I'm looking around the room thinking, who are the quitters in the room? And he, I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I had socks on that had lost their elasticity and they were floppy around my ankles. And in his family, I, I don't know if it's, and I, or it's an Americanism, I don't know. He said, when you have socks that no longer have elasticity and don't hang on to your legs, they're called quitters. And so there's a context that, you know, it's like, wow, where else would that apply? So I don't know if that was his own family circle that made that up. I have never heard it, but it's a nice <laughs> metaphor, isn't it? I have a whole drawer full of quitters. <laughs> exactly. We got into talking about all the quitters that we we own. Um, and so I came home to Jürgen and I asked him and he hadn't heard of quitters. But um, so, you know, there is a context where meaning was made and I had a whole new experience. So I, I had a, um, an enlarged vocabulary, if you will, and there was some sort of, it was very interesting. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> well, with each enlargement of the vocabulary, you gain something. You know, exactly. You get to see things in different lights. And, I know. And that's enormously valuable, enriching in yeah. our, terms of our potential. I know, a silly story, but it, I think it, it's illustrative of what we're saying here. Yeah. 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 Ken, you know, in the in the you know, through the lens of appreciative inquiry, would you share um with us a personal story that perhaps is a a high point story about living and being a social constructionist? Oh, there's so many. Um let me tell you a story from, oh, let's say, uh, let me tell you a story that, that Mary has related to me, which I found uh, very powerful. Um, the teachers at her university, uh, which is a, it's a local Penn State campus, were very unhappy with the caliber of work their students were doing. Um, it just seemed as if over a period of years, the caliber had 
the quality had gone down. Students weren't reading, they weren't writing very well, they didn't seem to care. And so they wanted to have a big meeting where they met with the students and began to tell them, you know, about their concerns. That uh, the work wasn't good and they really needed to, to, you know, do better if they wanted to succeed in life. But it was going to be a critique. Mm. Mary was very unhappy with this. I mean, she's a constructionist and she says, well, look, what happens to our relationships when you, when you call the world in terms of the way you're seeing it? And that is the world for you. That is your reality and the only reality. What happens to us when you put that into play in a relationship? You call those students in there and you begin to criticize in that way. What happens to your relationship with those students? Aren't there some other realities in which we should take into account? So he said, what if we have a meeting in which we talk about the things that we like that the students have done? And we'll ask the students about things that they have liked. And let's start there. Mm -hmm. right? We'll draw in a conversation where we talk about the positives and see how that conversation goes. Well, they had that conversation, and it was a wonderful night of mm -hmm. caring and so on, in which they could also talk about ways they could do better, things that weren't going well with them, that is, they could, they could communicate that information, but in a context of mutual caring. Yeah, yeah. Where the, where the school goes on, not in terms of animosity and alienation and distrust, but in terms of, hey, we are together. All by the simple movement of how you, how you focus the conversation, what reality you bring to light. It affects the relationships and the, and the community. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, so the essence there is being very aware of the reality or your lens or your perspective on the world. Well, of the, of the multiplicities, because one of the things that I try to argue is that you have more than one perspective if you simply will broaden uh, your sensitivity to who you are. As I talk about multi-being mm -hmm. and the way in which we have all, you know, a myriad of perspectives that we carry with us. Mm. But typically in any given situation, we narrow it. You know, you are a bad student or this is a bad essay. That was it. We, we have this convergence idea that somehow this is what it is. And we fail to listen to all the other voices that we have that somehow are oppressed in our own ways of, of, of approaching things. So it's part of it is simply listening to yourself. Yes, yeah, and there's something about, and I think, you know, it's part of our education, traditional education, that, you know, and you open this way talking about convergence, but, you know, having a very strongly held point of view is what gets you through life, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the way we've taught it. Yeah. You know, have one position, have a firm position, have character, um, have backbone. Well, I mean, all that kind of you know, be your own man kind of idea, which is part of that convergence thing in science as well, it is deeply problematic. And what I've tried to write about in in various places, oh, there's a book called The Saturated Self, is 
that we can no longer, in a world in which technology has changed the whole relationship network of the world, we can no longer afford to be those people who are so sure, who have a firm and abiding opinion. We can't afford it because there are too many voices with too many ideas. Mm. We've got to be able to participate in those conversations of the world, understanding the multiplicities, trying to combine them in ways, trying to find ways in which they can they can work mutually as opposed to my stand versus your stand. Mm. So inclusive versus exclusive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Integrative. Integrative, nice, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, go ahead. And so, you know, in terms of, to me, this rapidly feeds out into practice. That is... We say, okay, we understand now. We've got multiple groups in the world, and they can stay in touch with each other 24-7. That is, technologies of today will allow us, if we're, let's say, uh, a radical anything, to be in touch with those radicals or that group like us all the time. Uh, If you're a neo-Nazi, you can be in touch with a neo-Nazi clan or clique Everywhere, you mm. it, daily, moment to moment. You can even be uh, arranged marriages within that. I mean, <laughs> and it can continue to circulate. This is right, this is right, and this is right. And it's the same with Democrats and Republicans and various religious mm. groups. I mean, we can all stay in them and be very happy, but we can't afford to. Now, yep. now the, we can see that conceptually, but to me, and the reason I, I love people like you is, how do you make it happen? Mm. It's like, you know, it's like the Pope saying, well, we need uh, understanding. Well, that's very nice in, in, in principle, but how do you do it? Yeah. And people who work with dialogue in groups, and AI is only one of those practices, that's a how to do it. That is hey, this is how we can make that happen. Yeah. That's exciting to me. Yes, it's very it's very rewarding work because it is giving people the opportunity to tell their own stories and to hear other people's stories and, uh, and so on. By the way, and that's not a little thing when you just say, just the way in which AI and others have done this is to say, let's not listen to what you think is real. It is in some kind of principled way. Tell me your story. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, you go and do a leadership training, for example, and the trainer will at the front of the room will say, okay, what are the characteristics of a good leader? Right, right. And so right. intellectually you come up with this list of words, right? right. right. Yes. But if you were to ask somebody, well, tell me a story when you uh, were, you know, when you were in the company of a great leader or when you asserted your own leadership, what was that like? It's very different. And you can't very dispute different. that, can you? You can't dispute somebody's personal story. Well, also more than that, you can learn from a personal story in a way which you cannot learn from an abstract thing which says be rational or be understanding mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, have character or be honest. I mean, those abstractions lead very almost nowhere. Yeah. But to hear a story, you know have something, you yeah. know how to do it. Yeah, because it, it taps into the emotion um, and that's a very strong part of who we are. Yeah, Ken, there are so many yeah. tangents that we could go in. I mean, I'm really interested in the technology piece um, and how what that does to relationships. You kind of alluded to there, uh, you know, the 
the technologies we have today through the internet and the speed of connection and so on, you can form coalitions and groups that work in positive ways and negative ways. Yeah. But in the term, in, in, you know, just in, if you think about just, you know, the social world that we live in when we're talking about all these social media sites, what's your perspective about what's happening to human relations and what kind of worlds are we constructing with these tools? Yeah, you know, there's so many ways to approach that that issue it, and and they're quite fascinating for example what happens to our understanding of who we are as human beings uh, what happens to the nature of our relationships what happens to intimacy what happens to eros i mean yes, all the of economy those. all of that all mm. of that and and there's so much to say um it's like where do i where do i begin uh, but let me try let me try this um just for a moment, uh, because it's only one take, but it's been an important one for me in some in my own development. And that is, if if you look what happens in terms of relationship, if, when you're on, when you're in social media, when you're in email, uh, when uh, you can take any of these connectors that we have, and we have many uh, mobile phones, you. What you slowly begin to realize is that you're with, you're in connection all the time. You're, you're linked. You are communicating. And where we've come away from the past several centuries with a strong sense of an independent being, that is, I should be myself. Mm. I should be my own person. I should do it my way. You know, this strong sense of, of an independent identity, which we should strive for in terms of the old traditions, that's just gradually disappearing to the point that we realize that we aren't anything outside the connections. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I think, therefore I am. It's like I'm connected, therefore I am. Because I don't have any identity outside the number of people who are coming to my site, the number of friends wow. on Facebook, the number of people who come in my Instagram, blah, 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 right. number of emails I get every day. And without those, I, I don't, I am nothing. And so you have a, no, you lose your sense of identity, are you saying? or you? I'm saying that what happens, and this is the, this is the promising part to me, is that you lose a sense of yourself as the center of gravity, uh-huh. For what ex- for what makes things happen, and I'm my hope and appreciation for the force of relatedness. That is, that the center of gravity for creating the world is not in you; it's in the relational process. Mm. And that's that's my hope, irrespective of the medium. Well. It, it, what I'm arguing here, proposing, is that the fact that we're linked in so many ways in all these media, Mm -hmm. that it gives us a sense that it's the relational process Mm -hmm. which is important in the world and not who you in particular are. Oh, I love that. That's, That's new for me to think it in those terms. Well, I, I have, when I've argued that in various places, some people find it scary. Some people don't like it. Um, but I think it's, it's some sense, it's the, 
it, it, without that awareness of the relational process, we're going to be in, in bad shape as uh, over the next centuries. Mm. This is part of, my, I argue a lot of this in a book called Relational Being. I don't know whether you know that book, but it's, um, it's a very nice book because it's, it, it's written in multiple voices. That is I, I, that I will, multi-being. Above. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm going to put a number of your books on. You know, we have this show notes page, so I'll put a yeah. lot of links so people yeah. can get these books. Well, you'll like that one. But what the argument of that book is, let's try to make real the relational process in a way that we have made real the individual identity in the past 300 years. As we've got, it's like, it's like this, Robin. It's like if you took game of chess, mm-hmm. we have a thousand terms for the individual pieces, like the king. You know, we have a, a 2,000 terms just in psychology for what happens in people's heads. Mm-hmm. We can talk forever about an individual, but we don't have a vocabulary for the game. Ah, yes. Or the we. Yes. What we're doing. Big vocabulary for what you are and what I am. But what about the us that's co-creating this conversation right now? Mm. How could we talk about that? Mm. It's making real that relational process that I think, to me, the future of humankind depends. Future of the environment depends. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Time to pause. (laughs) Reflect, right? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So does this kind of... um, you know, what's what's a, a big conversation you'd like to be part of? I mean, this seems like it's heading in that direction, but, you know, what what do you see on the horizon or what are you working well, on now? That's- you know, yeah, it, uh, 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 let me sort of rewind a little bit. What really interests me are the ways in which we can make this happen, the way we can focus on, let's say, the form of dialogue. How are we going to have that talk? Who, who should be on the same, who should be in that? Now, let me just make this real in several cases. I work with a company, for example, in Finland. And what they're interested in are technologies that will allow organizations to have conversations at one time across the organization. So, you know, a lot of major organizations are divided into functions. Mm-hmm. You know, here's the research and development, and here are the operations, and blah, blah, blah. And you get communiques across them, or the leaders will come together to talk. But this technology would allow, let's say, 10 people in operations and 10 in human resources and blah, 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 all to be online at the same time with all the faces having conversations with each other. Mm-hmm. So you hype up the relational process, seeing faces all together at the same time in a major way. And it's, it's just one move, but it's a, it's a move which says, look, let's work on the way in which the relational process works in this organization to bring us together. And this is most important today because top-down organizations cease to function very well in a world of continuous change. Mm -hmm. To have a world of of continuous fluctuation that we're in today, you've got to have flexible, innovative organizations. And for that, you've got to have conversation which moves rapidly, where where the process of relating is really maximally effective. So that 
technology would do it. Now, that's just one example. Let me give you another of something I'm working on right now, which is I'm very excited about. And it's a project called Collaborative Governance. Mm-hmm. That is, we've got in the West, we've got this idea, well, okay, we elect these officials and they make the laws and implement the laws and so on, and then we're the subject of whatever they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, most of that lawmaking is like top-down administration, and it that doesn't take us into account. We may have elected the officials, but they just make those make those laws like orders, like policies, which are just laid on us, which for many of us are onerous. They don't take us into account. They have never listened to us. They don't, uh, it, it, they're just there doing things to us. Now, <clears throat> how could we arrange for government to work collaboratively with the people it's supposed to serve? Not simply electing officials, but if you have a policy, ask the people to engage with you in conversation about what, how that policy should work. No, why would you do that? <laughs> yeah, why would you do that? You'd say. <laughs> uh, but I, I, one example of this, and I just was in uh, Denmark. Uh, Denmark is so far ahead of the United States in these issues, but um, it was on. Uh, collaboration in um, the way in which public services um, are provided and um, particular welfare services. And let's say, let me take that case. For example, you you want people to get their jobless. You want to find jobs, have them find jobs. And typically we set up policies where this is what you do. You you, here's the list, and you're required to do X, Y, or Z, and if you don't do that, you may go off welfare. I mean, it's like, it's, we set it up in advance, here's what you have to do, find the jobs, there they are, go out and do it. And people don't do it, they don't get the jobs, they don't, and it costs a lot of money to keep these services running. Mm. So what they're trying to do is to say, look, people want the jobs generally, but why do we set all the policies? They, they will have ways of finding things if we can help them. So rather than dictating how this operates, let's work with people who are jobless and see what would help them find those jobs. So if, they, if there's, let's say, a job in a neighboring city or town, they may need the bus fare to get there. That's what would help them the most. Mm -hmm. They may need to spend the night there to to be ready the next morning. Why don't we tailor make our services to the particular needs they have in finding the jobs? And what they've done is because of that kind of shift in policy, they reduce the amount they spend on, on helping the jobless find jobs. And the number of people, the percentage of people who find jobs has gone up. So it costs less and it's more effective by working with people instead of on them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's a lovely mantra that I, I, I'm, that I like to say, and that is that people support what they themselves create. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So let them co-create with, mm-hmm. with governing officials mm-hmm. as opposed to the officials determining what's good for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Ken, do you, I mean, you've, you've cited two um, situations there, like a business example with the 
collaborative technologies and then the the government work in um, in Denmark. Yeah. So are you consulting to these entities and bringing uh, this orientation to them about how they might be more inclusive and f- focus on the relational process? Yeah, well, I you know, it's... Um, <laughs> It's hard to understand exactly who I am and what I do, but um, <laughs> let's say in the in the Finnish case, uh, they had picked up on some of my work, and I'd gone there and given a number of talks and workshops for their people. So I do internal workshops mm-hmm. uh, that are mostly idea focused, and allow them to. And then I've also. So hang on, let me just backtrack. So you yeah. do these workshops and the the purpose or the objective of this is to... In this case is to give them ideas to work on. Okay. How would you do that? What? Why, why is this important? How does it work? What would be the ideas you, you would want to play mm-hmm. with? It's like opening up a perspective. Mm-hmm. So you can see it in a broader and let's say richer way. In the case of the Danish... Group, I actually gave a speech at a small conference that was interested in collaborative issues and knew I would be. Now, what I'll do from that, because I have other people I talk about with, I'll work with Taos to form a a small task force on collaborative governance and trying to bring people together on this so we can share ideas and, and practices. Now, out of that, who knows what what will develop? Maybe a small conference, maybe a book, maybe a website, maybe a larger network. Um, It's hard to know at this Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it is a co-construction. It's evolving. It's developing. And so my role in that is to help nurture that Uh co-constructive effort so that it becomes something. Very cool, yeah. To very good um, examples of the application of this work. Yeah, there's another one uh, right now, for example, uh, I'm working with people, this is a global thing, on education because education, as we've inherited, is is pretty much part of that convergence idea I began with. That yes. is, here's knowledge, you learn it. Yep. <laughs> Here it is, master it. Mm. And in a world in which you've got continuous fluctuation and what you need to know for what purpose and what voices may be relevant, that kind of education is not only irrelevant, but it's, it has become onerous in the sense that you just go into a school and they stamp in this stuff and measure you on how well you master it. So that education is like this, like this machine grinding out sausages. You know, we want quality control. Everybody's got to be measured. Yeah. And I've watched my, uh, in this case, granddaughter, who was you know, brilliant, that young girl at 12, who was very sort of loved ideas and so on. And by the time she got through high school and in all the advanced courses she was taking, so, you know, we got to speed up, I got to get more and more advanced. She didn't like school at all, wasn't interested in any ideas, uh, didn't know why she was going to college, except that she should. It was as if the education system had just sucked all the energy out of her for any any uh, energy and interest. And I, I thought it was just, you know, uh, it was a tragedy. So part of this, this and it's, I'm not scarcely alone in this observation, 
this global um, conference that we're forming is to inject joy and energy into education through collaborative practices, mm. like teachers working with students, working with uh, administrators, working with the community. So everybody gets involved in it and the voices are shared and the concerns that people have get into the educational system as opposed to being left out in the service of mastery. Yeah. And um, so interesting, you know, when you talk about the collaborative um, processes or practices are working with, I mean, it's all those, you know, that you think about the, the prefix co, right? So co-construction, yeah, yeah. collaboration, co, 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 co-creation. Right. So it's all to do with, yeah. you know, um, and you can come up with a whole host of words that, that um, you know, indicate to us that it is about working with people and including all those voices. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. an education is a very big one. I'm sure it's very dear to your heart. Yeah, let me uh, just mention, by the way, the Taos Institute now has a master's program and a certificate program in what we call relational leading. Oh, I'm so, so interested. And the attempt there, <laughs> yeah, well, you should join in. But uh, the attempt there, of course, is to say, look, leading is not like making people follow you. Um, mm-hmm. It's like joining into a process or helping to co-create the process mm-hmm. out of which organizations mm-hmm. move ahead. Yeah. So, you know, that's how I came across all those um, co-words because it it was thinking about, you know, the role of leading with. And um, so that's where it came to me. Ken, I I want to ask you, um, I want to just go off on a tangent here because there's a particular question that I have and I would love your perspective or one of your many perspectives on this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got that right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I'm I'm learning, right? Well, I'm sitting at the feet of a a master here, I have to say. (laughs) Um, And it's to do with the world of marketing. Yeah. Now... You know, I I need to generate business, so I go out there and I kind of, you know, I have to think of a marketing, put a marketing hat on. And, you know, I listen to webinars and I read books and I listen to all these, you know, experts. It's a word that I, a term I'm not comfortable with, but anyway. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so you continually hear that a good marketer addresses the pain point of the customer you have to identify the pain point. What's the problem you're solving? And when you can articulate that, that's when you're kind of tapping into the customer. Well, through my appreciative lens, I struggle with that, right? Yeah, so sure. that deficit-based language, you know, yeah, and yeah. You, it's, you, don't, you hardly find a marketer that can talk or address it differently. And so, you know, I have this huge desire to shift it to, you know, what are the opportunities? What would give you the greatest joy? What are the possibilities here? So why do we go to the pain point? Why do marketers, and, you know, again, one of your perspectives, how would you respond to that, that frustration that I have? Well, there are a couple of things. One is, it seems to me that I I understand that, that logic, and it's been around for a long time, yeah. But it's so much runs against the grain of, of, of what I've seen in the last decade um, in terms of, um, oh, let's say um, the Apple and other organizations which are not, not dealing with the pain, they're creating products which you never knew you wanted. Fabulous, yes. 
Uh, mm. They don't deal with what you, you know, the, the problems you have, but with creating new new things that you could do or have or be. Um, and that's, that's a whole different way of thinking about marketing. Mm. Um, I mean, that to me is uh, the impetus behind uh, creativity by design, that whole movement. Let's get together a whole group of people and create something that would be the next big thing. Yeah. And people never even knew that what they couldn't even imagine the next big thing. But if together we could. We Fantastic. Could imagine. Yeah. Now, that's one thing. I wanted to also mention to you, I'm in touch with a group, and maybe you should get to know them. I don't know them that well, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a, called relational marketing. Ooh, now, I what they're, know. yeah, and what one of their big emphasis, it's an international group, and I can put you in touch with them. One of their big emphasis is on um, you don't market. What you do is to work with people to get them involved with your product. So they become part of it. Now you'll see this uh, the way a lot of a lot of um, webs will work, where you go online and you contribute a, an opinion or a checkpoint or something, answer some yeah. questions, and it becomes part of what's displayed. Mm. Um, so I noticed in the paper today uh, that they're they're at, in the sports page. They're asking people. What would what would be the best player we should uh, the the player we most miss mm, from mm -hmm. our team, and they'll have a question like that, and they'll give you the day before answers the the question X percent answered this X percent answered that, so you become you become part of the newspaper. Yeah, good examples. Uh, mm. You are your voice is actually on the page as part of the forty seven percent. Mm. And it's that kind of thing where you you involve people with what you're doing to the point that they are they are the product. Yeah, and I think there's a term for that and you've just kind of made that connection for me. So thank you. This is just an example of, you know, coming up with a, another idea from what we're saying here and that's user-generated content. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's that, what you're that's, describing, that's right? part of the same, yeah. same conversation, yeah. yeah. So, yes, all that has really uplifted me. It would um, be like user-generated marketing. Yes. <laughs> yes, well, it's all about involving people and having a say. And, you know, I, I don't watch ads on TV very often, but when I do see an advertisement that it focuses on what's possible and it, it is innovative and it is kind of life-affirming and uplifting and that, that excites me because, you know, I think, oh, yes, there's hope. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I also think, you know, we've become a, a little skeptical about marketing. It's based on the negative that we're going to solve your problem. Yeah. Because will you really? Uh, I mean, when you hear all these drug ads about, well, we can, you know, solve the problem of sleeping or your sex drive or your uh, problem with anxiety, blah, blah, blah. And then you hear the side effects. Would, including death, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you say, "What the hell?" I don't. I'm not sure well, maybe that comes back to um, <laughs> the collaborative governance. Maybe they have to say something like that <laughs> to um, protect themselves. Yeah, Ken, um, I am so enjoying this conversation, and yeah, I wonder, fun. in by way of wrapping it up, two things. 
Uh, one is, um, is there something that you would like to say that, you know, you're provoked to say or it comes to you or you haven't had an opportunity? That's one. And then the, other, the, other, the last thing would be if you had three, three ways that you would like to encourage people to begin to become more, to become social constructionists themselves, what three ideas might you share? So there were two things there. Yeah, I don't, um, you know, there's so much I could add and would love to add, um, but there's nothing that's sort of yearning there. Oh, my God, we didn't finish that or I uh, wasn't complete. But um, so I'm okay about that. Okay. <laughs> Three things. Oh, that's so hard. You really, uh, Don't finish off with easy questions, Robin. <laughs> um, a couple, several things. One, I mean, some of them are easy. Um, for example, if this kind of thing interests you in general, go to the Taos Institute website mm -hmm. because there we we just give away a lot of stuff. I mean, we have a whole, uh, I mean, there are a huge number of articles to download, books that you might want to read, podcasts, um, videos. You can do a whole, I mean, I've got a whole video there on social construction. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a lot of stuff is there. And then you can see the way people are using this in, in education and organizations and uh, so on and so on and so on. Excellent. Um, but I want to say one of the things that really is exciting me about that right now, we started something called World Share Press. And because books are so expensive and only a few people can buy them, we just give the books away for downloading. So we now have about 25 books uh, in seven languages, I think now. And they're downloaded by the thousands all over the world. And a lot of this stuff is relevant to practitioners. There is, there's some high-level theory, but a lot of it, we try. I mean, our aim is to change the world. <laughs> a lot of it is for pr practitioners. So it's it's easy enough to, to, to get involved or to get to know what's happening there. And you can also sign on to receive newsletters and so on or come to conferences, join workshops, join a certificate program, whatever. There's a lot of entry. Absolutely. That's great. I'm glad you, you mentioned that. And they'll, I'll put the link. Yeah, do yep. that. Mm -hmm. um, another one is, you know, there's a number of practices um, that, and a lot of people who come into constructionist ideas come in through the practitioner door. And AI, for appreciative inquiry, is one of those where you're, you, you are aware of a, a practice that works and you want to learn more about it. And you, it's like you, you come up with a gut level feeling for what it means to listen to stories and how they can be generative. And you can begin to see how this can work in various practices that you're involved. And then the ideas come, as you said, it's one of the backgrounds of AI. You sort of become interested in the background mm -hmm. and, and how that, that functions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important is, yeah. is coming in the practitioner door. Yeah. And there are a lot of those doors uh, yes. at this point. So what might be... For people who have, have listened to um, us today and they, they, you know, we're ending now, what's one thing that they could do immediately? I mean, surely they can go to the website <laughs> and they can, they can download books and they can, you know, learn more about appreciative inquiry, but I'm looking for a real practice. You mean right now? Right now. It's something they can, you know, do they go and, yeah, I don't know, I don't want to say it, I want you to, right, what, um, what could we say, what could we offer? The, the, then the next conversation 
that you're that seems like it's not going well, think of another way you could put it, another way you could say it, a, another thing you could focus on, and let's say let's make it a more positive way, a more positive spin on what it is you're saying that could change the conversation. That is That's a great that's a good one. Do not focus on what is the real thing about what is the possible. Mm. What else? You know, how else might we say that? Yeah, how yeah. else could you put it? What yeah. would be another perspective, another reality, another set of words that also could be relevant? Right. Curious you were to use curious that you use the word spin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it is, there is a, there's another vocabulary. Uh, yeah. We were talking about marketing, weren't we? Yeah, but the, the thing I don't like about spin is that assumes that there's a real that you're trying to cover over. Yes, that's Or a constructionist I'm... says there is no real outside of how we put it. Uh-huh. So you've got to be very careful yes. about how you say things and yeah. what reality you bring to yeah. bear. Well, because there's another. That's another suggestion. You know, really be very thoughtful about how the impact of your own words. Yeah, 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 and how you could and take the words of the other and and recreate them as something else. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm really glad you said that. I I needed that kind of criticism. Yes. Or I, you know. Oh, I have to share something with you. This is just. I, I don't know. I, you just reminded me. So. Um, Jürgen, who is my, you know, my life partner and, you know, we, we work together um, on various projects too, he, he, um, he is a photographer. He actually did, um, you know, fine arts and photography when he was a student. And his lecturer, a guy by the name of um, Wiley Sanderson, um, he would, Jürgen says that he had this sign on his door when you'd come into his office for students and it says, people would rather be killed by praise than saved by criticism. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably not a good thing to end on. Um, but you know, it is, it, it is about yeah. reframing. <laughs> so, yeah. Sort of, yeah. And, That's and another what we, term for it. Reframing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Ken. Well, look, thank you so much. It's been, I've, my, my butterflies and my, my nerves kind of ease through your, your wonderful okay. manner. Thank you well, so much. It's been great spending time with you, Robin. All right. Thank you. Okay. I just so loved that conversation with Professor Ken Gergen, president of the TAS Institute. Let me encourage you to go to positivitystrategist.com slash PS45, which is the show notes page for this episode, to find many of the links to Ken's works, such as his books, his manuscripts, and much more, and the Taos Institute website as well. And you can download the Positivity Lens activity that accompanies this episode to receive a reminder of Ken's recommendations regarding starting or continuing your journey into the expansive worlds of social construction. He offers some simple and easily implementable starting points. And one final comment from me about the Taos Institute. I'm an associate of the Institute and just want to reinforce what Ken has said about the abundance of great resources that you'll find on the site on the topic of social construction across multiple disciplines for all ages and all professions. It's truly about opening us up to all there is out there and in there and everywhere else in those in-between spaces. 
also you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and remember what you focus on grows. So grow towards your best. Thank you.